0: Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to what appears to be the first serious fall weekend here in Wisconsin. And we are fortunate to have our panelist, Claire Zauke, back from vacation. Claire, it's good
1: to have you back. Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Yes, yes, it definitely is. And as always, Robert Craig is with us. Robert is the Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Good day everyone. So we have a a lot to talk about. It has been a busy week both uh, nationally but also uh, here in the state. Um, The maps were released by the legislative Republicans this week and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. They were actually just released the night before we recorded. Uh, We'll also talk some more about some things happening in the state but before we do Claire, it's great to have you back. Uh, build back better. Just so you know, it did not pass while you were on vacation. You didn't have the good fortune. Um, but I wanted to start. We we have to talk about build back better. Um, this week, the big news is uh, President Biden is fully engaged. We have uh, been talking about this and. It seemed last week that the president was starting to get more engaged, but this week really ramped it up, including a number of meetings last week. Uh, And he has also started to float the idea that he's gonna look to something more around $2 trillion. Claire, wanted to go to you for your thoughts uh, on the latest with Build Back Better and the prospects uh, to actually pass something historic. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it would have been uh, quite lovely if we've been able to pass the $3 trillion package while I was on vacation. I would have come back and been like, what do I do with my time now? I don't, I don't even remember what the rest of my job is. No, no, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, yeah, but uh, of course, as we all know, negotiations between uh, Congress and now the president and Congress continue. And it looks like where we're at now um, with the president meeting with uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona and Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia is that it'll probably be a package around uh, $2 trillion. Now, Manchin continues to say he wants less than $2 trillion in this package. So maybe it'll end up being like, you know, 1.99 or something. But like the number that we're aiming for right now, um, that seems the most likely is $2 trillion. Um, Now, of course, that means that you know, things are getting cut and things are getting scaled back. So the latest that I've heard is that, for example, the free um, community college is is out. Um, The child tax credit, um, I think, is still in, but might be scaled down to like two years instead of a longer number of years. So we're looking at uh, we're looking at those types of negotiations. in, in an effort to sort of scale down this budget. Now our stance is we got to keep all the stuff and obviously we want to get as close to 3.5 trillion as possible, but in absence of that being possible. We still would like to see as many of these programs in as possible, um, and and maybe uh, mess with the, the scale a little bit because you know once you give the American people something it's hard to it's hard to take it back. Um, Another example of this would be, uh, you know, we're having discussions, there have we, as if I'm at the table, uh, they are having discussions around um, the prescription drug reform and Medicare expansion components, right? So the the drug pricing that would negotiate different prices, lower prices for prescription drugs. Um, that looks like we're we're hoping will still be in, um, but they may try to reduce the number of drugs that would be negotiated by Medicare. And they might try to say um, that those negotiated lower prices wouldn't extend to folks outside of Medicare, right? So, so those are bad things for us. We want as many drugs as possible, and we want as many people as possible to benefit from those negotiations. Um, and then with Medicare expansion, um, including um, dental vision and hearing in um, Medicare benefits. Um, you know, we heard some rumblings that some senators are proposing. Well, what if we just do a pilot program with just dental, things like that? No, we don't want that. We need to make sure that all of those benefits, all of those benefits stay in. So th- those, are just, those are just a, a little teaser there of, of what these negotiations we think look like right now. Uh, but I'll pitch it to Robert for, for more thoughts.
0: Yes, Robert, your thoughts. And also one other thing I'll just add before you go, Robert, is uh, there is also appears to be a hang up also on uh, funding as uh, I, it's my understanding cinema is still standing in opposition to a lot of the uh, corporate uh, tax increases. Robert, your thoughts. Let me talk since Claire talked about what we know as of
2: Thursday morning about what the contours of the possible tradeoffs are. Um, that, cause that can change rapidly, especially by the time people are listening to this part of what's going on right now is, is that there are a number of deadlines that are going to both policy and political, which are creating urgency. Uh, there's the November 1st, Virginia governor's election and whether Biden can show he is being successful and getting something done matters in that race. It's closer than expected. Um, The federal highway funds are expiring October 31st, and Biden is going to a climate summit in Scotland on November 1st, and there's a lot of back and forth, including with John Kerry, his special climate emissary, around if we don't get serious things about climate, it'll undercut the United States' credibility. And so I think they really are trying to do this. There's all been all this talk of getting a deal done by by the end of this week, Which is what was uh, floated after the meeting between Joe Manchin and uh, um, Bernie Sanders on Monday. Now, there's been a lot of shuttle diplomacy, and progressives have been more prominent than we've seen in half a century. We saw we've seen Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Congressional Democratic Caucus, Progressive Caucus, excuse me, uh, meeting with Biden repeatedly, meeting with Manchin herself. Uh, We've seen others in the loop, like our own Mark Pocan, who's high up in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And so there's a lot of diplomacy and there's been a lot of um, really things changing, like the most important part of the climate uh, uh, piece, according to most experts um, is the mansion is vetoing it apparently. And that's devastating. And that risks that the future of human society and it's far more costly. I mean, it's, that trillions doesn't even count how costly uncontrolled global warming is going to be, folks. So this difference between 3.5 and 1.5, this is is talking about pennies and dimes comparatively to the stakes. So we don't know what else Manchin or Cinema are going to say I'm against in all of what Claire just laid out, because they're not really, the the media is doing a terrible disservice by acting like they're some sort of, States people who are making philosophical judgments about the price tag and any difference between 1.5 trillion or 3.5 over 10 years, which is less than the military budget over 10 years, folks. Okay, and uh, it, it's a, it, it's all a strategy planned by the biggest interests, the billionaires and the large corporation in this country and they're very highly paid lobbyists. And there's a smoke-filled room though it's not probably smoke-filled anymore. It's full of expensive little uh, caviar and hors d'oeuvres, right, and foofy things. And they have plotted this whole thing to make it about the price tag, to not really say uh, what, where the ball is, to then start throwing in hand grenades every time we get close to a deal, all of that, including probably Joe Manchin floating privately, but then hotly denying that he's considering leaving the Democratic Party and becoming an American independent. And then he denied that. This was David Coren, the, the Washington bureau chief of Mother Jones, very credible reporter, probably is going around and saying that, probably wanted the rumor to get out. Part of was, that was probably part of the strategy. Now, the big change, because there are these looming deadlines, is that Joe Biden is, is weighing it in a more direct way. He has been trying to be the, I'm getting people together, I'm using the power of the office to get discussion going, but I'm letting the legislative process take place, which is an improvement over, say, how Bill Clinton blew healthcare in the, and, and Hillary Clinton in the early 90s in his in his administration, where they tried to dictate to Congress. But there's been frustration that they don't know where he is. That has changed. She is now saying things like if we have to choose, let's do universal uh, uh, pre K instead of community college because the research shows that has more long term benefit. Anything you do with early childhood education is more benefit. Let's do child tax credit. The latest in the Washington Post uh, uh, it may be an update, it may be a different analysis, that uh, different intelligence uh, that then Claire said is only one year. Now, this does set all these up as things we have to do later, and it even increases the stakes of the 2022 and the 2024 elections. And so we're in a final stretch run, maybe, for generational reform, biggest opportunity in at least 50 years. Progressives are in a stronger position on the inside than ever before. We need people to keep speaking out. And Mark Pocan is calling in the Washington Post for Biden to take the bully pulpit, as a lot of progressives are. And I think once we have the contours of the deal, he absolutely needs to do that. He's been keeping his power dry. Now is the time to use the public power of this office to explain what is going to be in this final bill and then what else we're going to do later, since obviously we should not give up on the things that will fall out of this uh, deal.
0: Well, we're going to have to take a break here, our first break of the show. When we come back, We're going to continue this conversation, but we're going to add the layer of talking about what's been going on uh, this week also around voting rights legislation. And uh, as uh, I think our listeners know, the failed effort uh, to get the Freedom to Vote Act passed on Wednesday. But you're listening to the Battleground, Wisconsin, where Citizen Action can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We are talking about what is going on in Congress. It is a historic week, um, both in terms of this Build Back Better legislation that we spent the first segment talking and have been talking extensively about for a number of months now here on the show. Uh, But the other big piece uh, that moved or shall we say did not move uh, through the Senate is uh, the historic effort to try and protect the right to vote, and quite frankly, um, we've talked about this before, there are a number of states that have essentially set it up so that uh, if if this goes forward, it'll be virtually impossible uh, for Democrats uh, or progressives to be able to, to win effectively in a number of these states. And so it's very important that something like this pass, and the other dynamic, before I kick it to our panel that makes this also interesting, especially as it relates to Build Back Better, is Robert was talking about Joe Manchin and his flirting with potentially not leaving the Democratic Party. Well, part of the whole thing on the filibuster was the theory that uh, Joe Manchin was gonna help try to get a bipartisan solution on the voting rights. And he tried, he tried on this bill and got zero. Uh, He continues to support, does this help sort of keep him in the Democratic fold? Does this embolden to come up with a strategy around the filibuster to pass something given the, I mean, let's say it, just complete threat that this presents to the idea that Democrats could govern going forward. Claire, it's uh, good to have you back on this critically important topic. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, particularly as it relates to, to going forward, right? Like, they can't just let this sit, can they? This is a real threat, right? There will be no democratic majority going forward if they don't do anything um but yet it's very clear mansion made efforts to try to get bipartisan support that isn't happening is there a path forward
1: i'm with you uh and better than ever um yeah so the freedom to vote act uh was a is a bill um that is sort of the senate version of the voting rights act that was um vote or voter rights, I shouldn't call the Voting Rights Act is like an actual thing. So I shouldn't use that term. Um, But the voter protections bill that the House passed is uh, much more robust than the Freedom to Vote Act that the Senate was taking up. Um, So this was sort of a a scaled back version of that, but still had some some good basic things in it that we support. So for example, it would make election day a national holiday, uh, set minimum standards for each state, uh, just to have like standardized electoral processes, at least as a floor. Um, And some of those things would include, for example, at least two weeks of early voting and some type of same day voter registration, which we still have in Wisconsin, thank goodness. Uh, So it's a shame, obviously, that this bill failed on a, a party line vote. Uh, but to be honest, I'm not surprised by that. I mean, we've all heard, um, you know, Robert talk to us about why the filibuster is a problem, and this is clearly another uh, good piece of policy, a good bill that would that would help people and strengthen democracy that was thwarted because of the filibuster, and it's uh, it's really it's really a shame. Uh, I don't know if I have an answer for if there is a path forward. I think there would clearly be a path forward if we could get rid of the filibuster rule as it stands. Um, but, but with it like this, you know, 10, 10 Republicans, I think would have to change their mind on this bill. Um, it's, uh, for it to pass. It's, it's a problem. It's a big problem.
0: Yeah. It seems unlikely, right. That we're going to find, let's, say 10 Republicans. And the only pathway here is there some type of limited version of the filibuster that Manchin and Cinema and company would go for, you know, Robert, your thoughts, how does it, and how all this intersects with what are bruising build back better conversations. Robert just mentioned Manchin floated a threat to leave the democratic party. Uh, but yet everyone's got to understand, there is no future if they go forward Uh, into 2022 and beyond with the current elections that have been set up by a number of these states. Robert?
2: Well, Manchin's little play with, you know, masterminded by his lobbying friends in corporate America around floating that he might leave the Democratic Party to create leverage does raise the question as to whether he gives a damn whether we uh, make it possible for Democrats um, to win or even be competitive in the next election in the next round of elections. And so where his loyalties are is an open question. I can tell you it's, it's kind of, it's a mistake to believe that anything Manchin says is his final position. And that's what Gary Druckett, the executive director of Citizens National of West Virginia who has been dealing with Manchin since he was on a County board in West Virginia tells me, and I believe Gary and so everything's posturing and positioning, but he's not necessarily showing you his cards. So we don't know. It's speculation. Uh, U.S. senators who claim to have a great relationship with the Democratic side, hopefully they know better, but who knows? Uh, I guess the key thing is what's going on here. Manchin promised, he absolutely promised that a skinnier voting rights bill would which doesn't deal with campaign finance reform and dark money and all of those things, right? But still does deal with some of the worst voter suppression. Um, so it's, it, it, it's fine, there are good things in it as Claire laid out. Um, he, got, he, he promised, he got nothing. Why? Even from, there, from uh, Lisa Murkowski from, uh, from uh, Alaska who is considered more pro voting rights than any of the rest. Because it has been a unified Republican strategy since 2010 to make it to rig the elections, to rig the maps, to do voter suppression, uh, neo Jim Crow like. And the reason I call it neo Jim Crow like is because Jim Crow didn't ban African Americans voting. It just created a number of uh, provisions that seemed sensible at the time as, as, as reasonable regulations of the, of the vote of elections that were designed and then enforced in a way that made sure blacks couldn't vote and white people could, okay? So this is, these claim to be neutral, but they're set up so young people, so people of color in cities, um, all the folks that tend to vote against Republicans um, are are less likely to vote and less of them will vote. And it worked the last time. I mean, the the, the, the reduced turnout in Milwaukee between 2012 and 2016, despite efforts that might've been greater in 2016 for turnout, uh, but it was reduced anyway, uh, which was caused by the change in election laws in Wisconsin, that was much larger than the, than the amount of Trump's victory, the margin of Trump's victory in 2016 over Hillary Clinton. And they want more because they're a minority party. And so uh, Lisa Murkowski obviously is a loyal Republican. Whether Manchin is a loyal Democrat is an open question. And, and the same with Kirsten Cinema, who may be drummed out of her own Arizona Democratic Party and will be primaried most likely. And God knows what her game is. She may have her next gig with corporate America already lined up so she can do a, a whole tour. Um, but here's the thing, right? People should go back and look at or read uh, coverage of um, Angus King's speech in the Senate yesterday. Um, Angus King... He's an independent from Maine who has been a strong backer of the filibuster and has always been an independent, was an independent governor, but he caucuses with the Democrats like Bernie Sanders does. And he came out and said, look, the whole, the Democratic Party too much, the establishment, we are asleep at the wheel. This is the threat to democracy, period. And you know what? There's no Senate rule more important than that. And I'm now for, uh, either getting rid of or modifying the filibuster, whatever we can do to get this done, period. That was huge, and that was influential, and that changed the uh, dynamic within the caucus. And I think the, 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 the game here probably is to get Build Back Better done, whatever we can get, the best package we can get, around $2 trillion, and then to get this done, too, probably something more like the skinny mansion package because he, he and cinema probably won't vote for the better one, but we better do that. And we need to modify the filibuster to do it and mansion and cinema better help us. or they shouldn't be in the democratic party anyway.
0: Well, look, this, this issue is absolutely critical. And I appreciate Robert, you saying that, and it is super important in light of what we talked about last week extensively and the week before around Gableman is up to in this state, and we're going to go to a break here in a little bit. But on the back end of the break, we're going to dive into what is going on here in Wisconsin, in particular, as it relates to this. And that is that the Republicans yesterday, and that is Wednesday, released their maps, their legislative maps, their congressional maps, and they're horrendous, right? They're it's not shocking, but they're horrendously gerrymandered. And we're going to talk more about that, but just an example. Uh, the numbers say that they would have six of the eight congressional seats and 62, I believe 62 or 61, somewhere around there, 62 of the assembly seats, which is appalling for a state that is definitely purple and swings back. And one could argue leans Democratic. But that is the state of play. We'll talk more about it. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to this battleground, Wisconsin. We are talking about gerrymandering in the state of Wisconsin. Yesterday, the maps were released by the the legislature. Uh, These are maps that are certain to be vetoed, I believe, by the governor. Um, Claire, I'm going to kick it to you first um, and hearken back to the last time we talked about this, we had Sachin Cheta on, the Fair Elections Project, and such suggested that he thought it was possible the Republicans might actually put out maps that that the governor might consider accepting because they would be a bit better fearing what a court might do or not wanting to put that at risk. Well, we can put that to bed. Uh, these were not those maps. Uh, Claire, I'm assuming these are going to these are already <laughs> vetoed by the governor. Your thoughts on these maps?
1: Yeah, I don't see these being max maps that the governor is willing to sign right away, right? So preliminary analysis, and I think you touched on this in your intro remarks, show that 61, 62-ish percent of these maps, or of sorry, of the 99 assembly district maps would uh, either lean or be strongly Republican districts. And um, if you take into account the, uh, the the districts that also would be sort of like double digit strongholds for Democrats, you're only looking at, uh, I think like 18 sort of single digit liens. Um, So that means only like 18 districts that out of 99, that could be considered um, competitive. But, of course, we know that even like a nine percent swing is is not super competitive, right? Like it's hard to overcome that type of margin. So, um if you if you take that number, and I haven't seen seen or done this analysis yet, my guess is that out of those eighteen, maybe only half would be actually truly competitive, right? um and and that's that's a problem, right? Like we need, We need to have uh, maps that create districts that are um, competitive, right? There there are gonna be places in this state where there's just no way that a district is competitive. It's gonna be a really strong DEM district, it's gonna be a really strong Republican district, but they're also, I know there's more than single digit number of places in this state where there are Democrats and Republicans who live together and that should have a competitive race or at least, um, a rate, a district that isn't, uh, so, so gerrymandered. So no, I don't see these being maps that the governor is really, uh, interested in, in signing.
0: Yeah. Uh, it does seem like they ought to be maps that are more competitive, but, um, Clearly, that is not the plan. Uh, Robert, your thoughts on these maps and where we're headed uh, other than to the Supreme Court?
2: Look, we don't have to speculate here. It is This is part of a strategy of a minor, permanent minority party to permanently dominate our state. Look at the havoc they've created in the last decade, imposing a non-majority agenda upon the state and damaging it dramatically and damaging... Most of the 20th century's gains uh, and making turning us into something like a deep south red state or mountain state—it's uh, it, it, just horrendous. I mean, we're one of the few horrendous states. They're so um, selfish and uh, jaded that we're turning down money to expand health care, the Medicaid expansion. Uh, only one of 12 states, and the other on the list are the the, the most regressive places you can imagine. So Wisconsin's not used to being this territory. They want to use what happened in 2010 because they have an ill-gotten majority now as far as it being a supermajority to lock it in for another 10 years, okay? There are only 18 districts here that are less than single-digit gap in terms of partisan divide. So some of those are eight or nine points. So it's less than 18 that are competitive, okay? Out Out of out of 99 in the state assembly. And quite frankly, there we don't need to speculate. No reasonable map that was uh, that was objective or not explicitly partisan thing would have been drawn this way. It's part of a broader right-wing conspiracy that includes taking over the judiciary because the Roberts court has said that partisan gerrymandering is fine. What sense of we are we a democracy if partisan gerrymandering like this is fine? We don't have assent by the governed in this sort of situation. So the one silver lining here, and we should get to the congressional maps too, they are e- equally outrageous and they will steal an extra congressional seat with which a three vote margin now in the House could be vital to everything in the Biden presidency, that one seat. Uh, but there, Sechen Chedda, uh, who's been leading the Fair Maps effort in Wisconsin, he came on here and talked about the possibility that the Republicans will want to avoid possibly better maps in the federal courts and will present maps that the governor might sign. That seems not to have been the case. I was worried about that because I was afraid after not lining him vetoing a highly regressive tax cut and claiming as a victory in the budget that the governor could sign maps that he shouldn't sign. Um, But if he signs these maps, then he's gone mansion cinema and he, he should also be drummed out of the Democratic Party. I don't think he will. I agree with Claire. Not because he's not fulfilling the interests of the Democratic Party in partisan competition, but because he would not be showing any interest in democracy if he signed these maps, okay? Which is a fundamental value in the United States only held by one party now because of the forces that have taken over the other major party.
0: Folks, we're gonna continue to track what goes on with the redistricting maps, but one of the things that I want to encourage you all is we'll uh, put a link on our SoundCloud. Uh, but uh, there will these maps will have a, a public hearing, and want to encourage uh, folks uh, to testify. And uh, we'll have a place where you can uh, sign up with the Fair Elections Project uh, to to testify. Uh, it's important that the public get engaged in this fight. It is absolutely uh, critical. Uh, but with that, I want to continue the conversation on news here in the state. And there was a big news over the weekend. Uh, I think it was late last week that uh, the the report came out around Wisconsin's incarceration rates for black residents. Uh, The report came out from the sentencing sentencing project. And it basically said that we're we're the worst in the nation and that we're incarcerating one out of every 63 black residents. Claire, this this obviously this data speaks to the conversation that we've been having uh, for a number of years now, but most recently uh, through the pandemic with uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, this issue of, quite frankly, a system that is clearly clearly um, not fair, Claire.
1: Yeah. So I want to correct you. It's not that Wisconsin is incarcerating one out of every 63 black residents. It's that we're incarcerating one out of every 36, uh, which is...
0: Sorry, I misspoke.
1: No, (laughs) it's it's okay. I'm kind of glad you did because I feel like it makes the emphasis on 36, not 63. I mean, that's just uh, a huge, a huge different and a, a shocking and shameful statistic. For context, Arkansas uh, incarcerates one out of every 63, right? So to give you, to give you a sense of, of, uh, just how bad Wisconsin is in comparison to the rest of the country, um, the, the national average, which is still shocking and awful, um, according to uh, this report, which is a, um, a research and analysis project of the sentencing project, uh, a highly, highly credible, uh, national, um, research operation focusing on uh, this issue. Uh, So they found that nationally in the United States, one out of every 81 Black adults per 100,000 is serving time in a state prison. Um, So think about that. One out of every 81 Black adults in the United States. But in Wisconsin, it's one out of every 36. It's, It's awful. And to be clear, that statistic is not you know has spent time or is incarcerated it's like actively um serving time in a state prison it's uh it, it's horrible it's shameful um we are also one of the only seven states that where where there's a black white disparity of incarceration rates of more than nine to one Uh, So it's us, California, Connecticut, Iowa, Maine, Minnesota, and New Jersey. And I think it's worth listing those states um, because I think it's important, especially for white folks in northern states to realize that like this is not a, you know, southern state, deep south problem dealing with legacies of, you know, the histories of slavery and everything. Like, no, like this is active institutional um, racism and oppression harming people in our own communities in northern and midwestern states, right? And um, we're, we're very much living with this problem in our state right now.
2: Robert? It's bad, okay? And it's bad in the whole country. So this is not a statistic where we're the worst in something the United States is good at, or something we're the worst of something, the worst of the worst, because the United States is the worst. It, mass incarceration is a completely unique historical phenomenon and global phenomenon, and we, we've normalized it. Uh, the shocking thing when you get beyond the numbers is not only have we made no progress, I mean, Minnesota is way down the list of this list. Minnesota is better than the national average and the most similar state to us Look. I'm going to go. I know the Republicans are the biggest part of the problem, but Democrats are not proposing things that would actually move this number. Governor Evers promised to uh, cut, cut incarceration in half in his first term. He has proposed nothing, let alone, let alone put in his budget that would even remotely do that. So we need to get really serious. This is going to, and structural racism is hard to take on. This is going to require everyone taking political risks, especially politicians and a whole lot more focus because we're seeing the George Floyd moment, the greatest upsurge of of white support for African American liberation in American history in 2020, we're seeing that fade and we're seeing the system outlive it and continue. even get worse. The Republicans in Wisconsin are thinking about ways to make it worse and are proposing things. And if we lose the governor's race, they'll be able to implement things. And they'll be able to get even higher on the list and make sure we can maintain our number one ranking at African American incarceration.
0: With that, folks, we are unfortunately going to have to take a quick break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Um, we just finished before the break talking about these hist- these just horrendous incarceration rate numbers. Um, unfortunately... Um, a lot of this is a reflection of like how, you know, Robert, you mentioned policing, but also going forward, how do we continue to invest in, in, in folks and think about our future? And I wanted to, before we um, move on to a topic around what's going on with our school boards, Robert and Claire, I just wanted to get your comments on a Senate Republican bill yesterday that shockingly expanded child labor for 14 and 15-year-olds. Robert, I, you're, you come out of the labor movement. This is, uh, and a shout out to Stephanie Bloomingdale, president of the state AFL-CIO. She was there doing her best to try to stop this ridiculous legislation, but of course, it passed. Robert? This is about
2: how long uh, young teenagers work. In other words, whether they can work into the night and how early in the morning they can start. And it only applies to employers that are not covered by the National uh, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act, because it would be illegal federally otherwise, and uh, that is smaller businesses. Now, by the way, smaller businesses also, partly because of other structures beyond their control, pay less, have less benefits, etc., So it's part of the inequality in our system, what gets left out of the uh, National Fair Labor Standards Act. But here's the thing, right? They want to exploit existing labor. There's an endless thirst for labor, as I think Matt said in some of his notes for the podcast. And we're not doing the things that would actually enable all the folks who would like to work and can't to work. I mean, you provide childcare if you want. A lot of women have left the workforce because they have to take care of kids, or they end up, because women end up because of structural sexism with more of the caregiving responsibilities. Uh, we have, or to uh, deal with it or, or care for an aging parent or disabled child, whether a child or an adult. And so we don't have the supports people need to work. We don't have the training for folks in really depressed areas, totally locked out of the economy and the uh, way to, to bring them into the workforce, and the formerly incarcerated, for example, who have horrendous rates of unemployment. And we have a lot of them because we've had mass incarceration in this state worth double what Minnesota has. Our, 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 our close-up uh, are the most similar state to Wisconsin, but we're, our Republicans are working hard to make it far very dissimilar and make us the West Virginia to their Pennsylvania. Uh, but that's where we are here. Um, this is, this is an example of what happens. A lot more of this kind of thing is going to happen, kind of a run back to the 19th century and more, um, if, if, if these maps go through and if we lose the governor's race, which we well could.
0: Folks, this, we discussed this in the context of our deep discussion last week about organized labor, pushing back against this corporate assault on workers that is going and this is just a piece of it. Remember folks, they said they said, oh, if you just get rid of those those benefits that are going to workers, everything would be better. Well, that has not been proven case and this is further proof that there are as Robert as you said earlier, it is a thirst for labor. Um but we got to we got to actually move topics. We'll keep tracking that those kinds of topics, but Claire I wanted to get your thoughts. We have about seven minutes left. Uh, There has been just a wave. We've talked about it here a bit on the show around um, rising up parents from the right, the QAnon crowd, the anti-science crowd at schools around both first virtual, non-virtual last year, and then masks, no masks this year, Uh, and then also throw in critical race theory, Um, And we essentially have had a wave, both nationally, but also in Wisconsin, of, well, first of all, just crazy activity at school board, um, but uh, primarying, or excuse me, uh, recalling uh, school board members. And Wisconsin happens to be the second highest amount in the country. Uh, But beyond just recalls, these have become incredibly vitriolic, and uh, it is all. Very well coordinated by the Republican Party. And in this state, it happens to be very coordinated by Rebecca Clayfish. Claire, your thoughts as a former school board member about the state of play, uh, where we're at, and also if you have any, like, you know, real solutions as to what we ought to be thinking about as a movement here.
1: Well, uh, you know, I've always said that being a school board member is quite often a thankless job because the folks who pay attention to what's going on in school districts are pretty much only people either who have have kids in the district or Work for the district, Uh, and that if if you don't fall into one of those camps, like you don't have kids and you work somewhere else, which is the majority of folks, then like you don't really pay that much, except maybe to how it affects your taxes if you're a property owner. Um, And you know, it's not like municipal or county government where you care about you know are your roads being plowed and your trash being picked up and how's your you know sewage and water being handled, right? Um, And so uh, um, you often are are dealing with really intense emotions and people who have really strong opinions and uh, not getting a lot of thanks for what you do good and what you do well, but, uh, you know, getting a lot of uh, anger for making decisions that people don't agree with it's it can really be a thankless job and i think that is exactly what these school board members who are trying to do the right thing during a pandemic are facing right like they are doing the right thing by having masking requirements by having strict quarantine protocols by holding out as long as possible for virtual education and not keeping kids in buildings um you know but you know, then they they get faced by this massive number of recall petitions and this coordinated to your to your remarks effort. Right. So I think Wisconsin is one of the top two uh, in the country states with the most number of recall petitions against school board members. I think over 80 have been pulled this school year. It's really um, it's really a shockingly a shockingly high, high number. and. I think uh, the pandemic is probably the biggest part of that. Although you know, we have seen other um, other things that shouldn't be controversial being controversial, right? Like like teaching true history um, uh, and uh, sort of conservative Republicans uh, getting angry about you know what they what they call critical race theory without really understanding what it is, right? I mean, that can be triggering for some folks, and I'm sure that contributed to these as well. Um, yeah, so my, my heart goes out to these, to these school board members. Um, and I think Republicans also understand that these can be good springboard seats, right? Like you get somebody elected to the school board and then it's easy to get them elected to municipal government and then from municipal government maybe to legislature, right? Like it can be a good sort of pipeline of, of elected experience. And Democrats haven't always looked at school board races that way. I think, I think we look at other seats as springboard seats but not necessarily school board seats.
2: This is, look, it's going to drive people out of this kind of public service, as Claire laid out, and she's experienced this public service. This is not just happening. This is not because some of the media frames it as divisions in our society. This is a conscious strategy, and this is how the right built the intense backlash in the 70s and early 80s that was behind the Reagan revolution and Newt Gingrich's takeover of Congress. They started at the school board level with intense cultural issues. And the, the, the emotion of the people who are doing this is real, but it's being generated at the same time. So it's both generated and real. We have to hold both thoughts. It's both the Koch brothers and, thing funded. and a billionaire thing and heavily funded and coordinated, but the folks they, are, they have found and are connected to are really upset and they're being pointed like missiles at school board members, at, at voting clerks, another group being hounded out of their professions. Wisconsin across the country. And this is very dangerous. And we need we don't have a lot of unity because we are the Democratic Party and progressives really are organic grassroots movements without uh, top town direction. But we need to support these school board members because it's not just the recalls. it's They've been t- being taken out in reelections. And once you have these people in school boards, people who support these positions, then they become the next uh, legislators, etc. They change the whole politics of local areas. And what the right has done, and they did this during Act 10, is they've, they've turned bullying into part, a political strategy. You know what? That's what fascists and pre-fascists did too. Uh, they made it dangerous even to be on the right side or talk about science or, ta- or actually try to uh, run a fair election. And so this is extremely dangerous. And all you need to see is Rebecca Clayfish, No great mastermind, just part of the right wing infrastructure. The the Republican front runner for governor is encouraging these things. It was heavily encouraging, has her field team out in Mequon Themesville pushing this recall. So, this is part of Rebecca Clayfish's election strategy. So we need to both take it on, and we also need to do our own organizing, because if we only stick within the fights they start, then we're staying within their frame. But quite frankly, a lot of school board members and a lot of voting clerks and the majority of parents who want, safe schools need defense. And I think progressive activists and elected officials are a key component of that defense. This isn't all hands on deck, and this is also a we need to take risks, folks, because Really, this is an example that fits into the democracy question. Democracy is in chains and is in crisis, and this is a big part of it.
0: So, folks, we're going to keep talking about this subject uh, going forward. But if you are interested in potentially running for school board and think you'd be a good candidate, reach out to us. We're going to be heavily involved. We're looking forward to try to help folks and push back against this. So uh, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, But with that, folks, we got to go. We want to thank our producer, Brian Moldridge, who makes this great show happen every week. Thank you, Brian. And it's great having Claire back. Claire, it's great to have you back, ready to fight the fight. But with that, we got to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action.